Okay, everyone. So today we're going to talk about the Reconstruction period following the American Civil War. So let's get started. So all during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, who was president at the time, he was considering Reconstruction to be his responsibility, for sure. And in 1860, when he was elected, he had less than 40% of the popular vote, you know, not a lot. He was very well aware that, you know, once the states in the Confederacy are restored to the Union, his Republican Party are going to be weakened unless they stop being just, you know, a Northern party. They need to have widespread support. And so Lincoln was hoping to attract some of the former Whig party members in the South that supported a lot of the economic policies of the Republican party. And so he wanted to try and build up a Southern wing or faction of his party. And with reconstruction, what he did was he outlined his program and what he called a proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction. He came out with this in December of 1863. And what it specified was when a minimum of 10% of the qualified voters back from 1860, take a loyalty oath to the union, then they'll be able to organize their state government, their new constitution their new state constitution, it would have to abolish slavery and provide for uh, African-American education for the newly freed slaves. But Lincoln isn't going to really insist that the high-ranking Confederate leaders be banned or stopped from public life. Like, they can still hold office. And Lincoln says he's going to be pretty generous in granting pardons to the confederate leaders he's not ruling out compensation for slave property that lost slave property he's privately supporting limited black suffrage or voting rights in the southern states but he's not going to really demand social and political equality for them and the radical republicans that are in congress that's what they called this like more extreme group, the radical Republicans, they found his approach to be far too lenient. They're very strongly anti-slavery. And so these radical members of Congress, they lead the struggle to make emancipation a war goal. And now they're going to be leading the fight to guarantee the rights of the freed people. They believe it's the duty of Congress, not the president, to set the terms under how the states are going to regain their rights in the union. And the radicals will often disagree on a lot of things, but they're very united with their determination to readmit the southern states only after slavery has been ended, the black rights are protected, And that power of the once very strong planter class in the South is destroyed and gone. So under the direction and guidance of a few different Congress members like Senator Benjamin Wade in Ohio and Representative Henry Winter Davis in Maryland, Congress is going to create a much stricter plan of reconstruction. And this is going to be called the Wade-Davis Bill. 
It requires half of the white adult males to take an oath of allegiance, like a loyalty oath. Before they can create a new state constitution, it restricts the political power to the hardcore unionists, the big union supporters. Lincoln vetoes it. But as the war is going on and it's kind of coming up to its end, it looks like he's going to be ready to make some concessions to the radicals, like putting the defeated South temporarily under military rule with federal troops. But then he's going to be assassinated at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. So... Lincoln's final approach to Reconstruction, we'll never really know what it truly was. But in the wake of all this defeat, the immediate reaction among a lot of the white Southerners is, you know, they're shocked, of course, because they lost. There's despair, hopelessness. Some former Confederates are going to be openly antagonistic. And most Confederate soldiers aren't going to be as like openly defiant as some of the others because, you know, they had their fill of war, you know, they're like, we're done fighting. We don't want this. But even among the hostile civilians, the feeling is widespread that the South is going to have to accept the Northern terms. And so this kind of psychological moment, is very critical for them to try and prevent a resurgence of resistance The president's going to have to lay out in very clear, unmistakable terms what the white Southerners are going to have to do to regain their old status in the Union. And he says, well, maybe even a clear, firm policy isn't enough. With Lincoln's death, the executive power is going to be falling into far less capable hands and Andrew Johnson. He's not quite as adept at reading the political mood as Abraham Lincoln was. So Andrew Johnson, just a little background on him. Uh, He's our new president following Lincoln's assassination. He had been born in North Carolina, eventually moves to Tennessee. And there he works as a tailor. When he marries, he's barely able to read and write, but he will rise to political power by portraying himself as the champion of the people against the wealthy planter class. And he does accept emancipation as a consequence of the war, but he lacks any concern for the welfare of African Americans. He doesn't really care what happens. After serving in Congress, and he was also going to be the military governor of Tennessee, following their occupation by Union forces at the beginning of the war. Johnson, who is a Democrat, he's going to be tapped by Lincoln in 1864 as his running mate on a new ticket that they relabel as the Union ticket. So the radicals in Congress, they expected Johnson to uphold their views on Reconstruction. On assuming the presidency, he will speak of prosecuting Confederate leaders, breaking up planter estates. That's what they think he's going to do. And unlike most Republicans, though, he strongly supports states' rights. And 
all his political shortcomings are going to spark a lot of conflict almost immediately with Congress. So he's going to be very inflexible when challenged or criticized. He alienates even those that try to work with him. So he's going to move to return the Southern states to the union very quickly. He does prescribe a loyalty oath that most white Southerners would have to take to regain their civil and political rights and have their property except for slaves restored. Any high Confederate officials, anyone with property worth over $20,000, they would have to apply for individual pardons. Once a state, Drafts a new constitution and elects state officers and members of Congress. Johnson promised to revoke martial law and recognize the new state government. Suffrage or voting rights, that's going to be linked to white citizens that had taken the loyalty oath. And the plan is similar to Lincoln's, but it's a lot more lenient. So only informally does Johnson stipulate that the southern states are going to have to renounce their ordinances of secession. They're going to have to repudiate or go against the confederate debt ratify the 13th amendment that abolishes slavery it had been passed by congress in january of 1865 and it's in the process at this point of being ratified by the states it will officially become part of the constitution in december of 1865 and so johnson's program basically fails essentially so the Southern delegates that meet to build these new governments, they're not in any mood to really follow Johnson's recommendations. Several states just repealed instead of repudiating their ordinances of secession. They reject the 13th Amendment or they just refuse to repudiate the Confederate war debt. The new governments uh, are not going to allow African-Americans any political rights or provide any effective path for black education. Each state is going to pass a series of laws that were often modeled after their old slave codes. And these African-Americans do give uh, some rights to them that they hadn't been granted as slaves they legalize marriages from slavery, allow black Southerners to hold and sell property. They can sue and be sued in state courts. Their primary intent, though, is to keep African-Americans as these propertyless agricultural laborers with inferior legal rights. The new freed people, they can't serve on juries. They can't testify against whites. They can't just work as they please. Mississippi, for example, is going to prohibit them from buying or renting farmland. Most states uh, provide the black people who were vagrants could be arrested and hired out to landowners. Many northerners are going to be very incensed and outraged by these very restrictive black codes. And that violates, obviously, their conception of freedom. So southern voters, under Johnson's plan, they will defiantly elect prominent Confederate military and political leaders to office. And Johnson, at this point, he could have called for new elections or admitted a different program of reconstruction is needed. But instead, what he does is he caves in. And so for all of his very harsh rhetoric, he 
kind of shies away from the prospect of social upheaval as lines of ex-Confederates waiting to see him for their pardons grows longer, it lengthens. He starts issuing special pardons almost as fast as they can be printed on the paper. So very publicly, Johnson's going to put on a bold face, announcing Reconstruction had been successfully completed. But a lot of Congress members are very deeply alarmed and concerned. And so this sets the stage for a lot of confrontation between them. So this new Congress is not going to be, you know, of one unanimous mind by any means. There is a small group of Democrats, a few conservative Republicans that do back the president's program of immediate and unconditional restoration. But at the other end of the spectrum, spectrum, which is the larger group of radical Republicans, it's going to be led by men like Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, Benjamin Wade. They're very hellbent, if you will, on remaking Southern society in the image of the North. And Stevens, for example, he said, Reconstruction must revolutionize Southern institutions, habits, and manners, or all our blood and treasure have been spent in vain. So that's kind of the mentality of the radical Republicans in Congress at this point. And so as a minority group, the radicals, they need the aid of the moderate Republicans, which is the largest bloc in Congress. Uh, and they're led by a couple of people like William Pitt Fessenden and Lyman Trumbull. And so the moderates don't really have a desire to foster or create social revolution or promote racial equality in the South. They do want to keep Confederate leaders from reassuming power. They're convinced the former slaves do need federal protection. And so the main issue dividing Johnson and the radicals is the place of African Americans in American society. Johnson accused his opponents of trying to Africanize the Southern half of our country while the radicals are championing civil and political rights for African Americans. So the only way to really maintain loyal governments and develop a Republican Party in the South is to give black men the ballot, is what the radicals believe. So moderates agree the new state governments are too harsh towards African Americans, but they fear that too great an emphasis on black civil rights is going to alienate Northern voters. So in December 1865, when Southern representatives to Congress appear in Washington, a majority in Congress will vote to exclude them. Congress is going to appoint a joint committee to look into Reconstruction. And we see this growing split with the president that becomes clearer after Congress is going to pass a bill extending the life of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was created in March of 1865. It provided emergency food, clothing, medical care to war refugees, including white Southerners, not just freed people. They take charge of settling freed people on abandoned lands. And so the new bill is going to give the Bureau more responsibility of supervising special courts called the Freedmen's Courts to resolve disputes involving freed people and set up schools for black Southerners. The bill will pass with virtually unanimous Republican support but President Johnson vetoes it. Johnson had also vetoed a civil rights bill that was designed to overturn a lot of the provisions of the Black Codes. 
and the law made African-American citizens of the United States granted them the right to own property, make contracts, and have access to courts as parties and witnesses. The law is not going to go so far as to grant freed people the right to vote, though. So for most Republicans, Johnson's action is just kind of the last straw. In April 1866, Congress will override his veto, which is difficult to do, but if you get two-thirds majority in both houses, you can override a presidential veto. And so Congress will then approve and override the president's veto of a slightly revised Freedmen's Bureau bill in July as well. So Johnson's refusal to compromise is going to drive the moderates in Congress into the radical wing. So to prevent these unapologetic, unrepentant Confederates from taking over the reconstructed state governments and denying African-Americans basic freedoms, the Joint Committee on Reconstruction in Congress is going to propose an amendment to the Constitution, which passed both houses of Congress with the necessary two-thirds vote in June of 1866. This amendment is going to guarantee repayment of the national war debt, prohibit repayment of the Confederate debt, To counteract the president's pardons, like his wholesale pardons he's dishing out, it's going to disqualify prominent Confederates from holding office. Because a lot of the moderates are kind of balking at giving the vote to African Americans, the amendment merely gives Congress the right to reduce the representation of any state that did not have impartial male suffrage. So the amendment's most important provision, Section 1, Defined an American citizen as anyone born in the United States or naturalized, thereby automatically making African-American citizens. This section also prohibited states from abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens, depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or denying any person equal protection of the laws. And so the framers that were writing this amendment, they probably intended to prohibit laws that applied to one race only, like the black codes, or that made certain acts felonies when committed by black but not white people, or decreed that different penalties for the same crime when committed by white and black lawbreakers. So the framers probably did not intend to prevent segregation, which is that legal separation of the races in schools and public places. Johnson is going to denounce the amendment and urge Southern states not to ratify it. And ironically, of the seceded states, only the president's own state, Tennessee, ratifies the amendment. And Congress is going to re-admit Tennessee with no further restrictions. So when Congress is going to block Johnson's policies, Johnson undertakes a speaking tour of the East and Midwest and fall of 1866 to try and drum up some popular support. President is going to find it difficult, however, to convince the Northern audiences that these white Southerners really are repentant. Only months earlier, white mobs in Memphis and New Orleans had attacked black residents and killed nearly a hundred people in two major race riots. When the president encounters hostile audiences during his Northern campaign, he's only going to make matters worse when He's going to trade insults and proclaim that the radicals are traitors. So, yeah, he's not really off to a good start, as you can see. And the radicals 
are going to vilify Johnson as a traitor, aiming to turn the country over to former rebels. Resorting to the tactic of waving the bloody shirt, it was a campaign tactic where they would wave a shirt that was had like red paint or sometimes even like pig's blood on them that invokes the deaths and casualties of the Civil War as a reason to vote for Republicans as the party of the Union rather than Democrats that had very often opposed the war. So by doing this tactic, they appeal to voters by reviving a lot of the bitter memories of the war. And then a classic example of this type of rhetoric, the governor, Oliver Morton from Indiana, proclaims that every bounty jumper, every deserter, every sneak who ran away from the draft calls himself a Democrat. Every son of liberty who conspired to murder, burn, rob arsenals, and release rebel prisoners calls himself a Democrat. In short, the Democratic Party may be described as a common sewer. You know, this is kind of the tactics we're dealing with during the campaign season in 1866. Voters will repudiate and go against Johnson as the Republicans are going to now win more than a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress. The radicals are going to reach the height of their power that is spurred by this genuine alarm among Northerners that Johnson's policies lose kind of the fruits of all that union victory. And so Johnson is now going to be a president without a party for the most part. So what is congressional reconstruction going to look like? So with a very clear mandate in hand, congressional Republicans are going to pass their own program of reconstruction. So it begins with the first reconstruction act in March of 1867. And it will repass over Johnson's veto. He vetoed it and they override his veto. And so now these un- 10 unreconstructed states are going to be placed under military commanders. The act will provide that in rolling voters, officials are to include black adult males, but not former Confederates who are barred from holding office under the 14th amendment. Delegates to the state conventions are to write and frame their constitutions that provide for black suffrage and disqualify prominent ex-Confederates from office. The first state legislatures to meet under the new constitution are required to ratify the 14th amendment. Once these steps are completed and Congress approves the new state constitution, a state can then send representatives to Congress. White Southerners find the requirements very insulting. Uh, And so the officials, they're actually going to take no steps to register voters. Congress is then going to pass a second Reconstruction Act, also in March, ordering the local military commanders to put the machinery of Reconstruction, all these provisions, into motion. Johnson's efforts to try and limit the power of military commanders produces a third act, passed in July, that upholds their superiority in all matters. So when the first election is held in Alabama to ratify the new state constitution, Whites will boycott it in sufficient numbers to prevent a majority of voters from participating. Congress is then going to pass a fourth Reconstruction Act in March of 1868, which required ratification of the Constitution by only a majority of those voting rather than those who were registered. And so by June of 1868, Congress will readmit the representatives of seven states. 
Texas, Virginia, Mississippi will complete the process in 1869, and Georgia will finally follow in 1870. So what are these like post-emancipation societies like in the Americas? So with the exception of Haiti's revolution, which was from 1791 to 1804, the United States is going to be the only society in the Americas where the destruction of slavery is accomplished by violence. So the United States, which is very unique among these societies, it enfranchised former slaves almost immediately after emancipation. So in the United States, former masters and slaves are going to fight for control of the state in ways that don't occur in other post-emancipation societies. So in most of the Caribbean, property requirements for voting left the planters in political control. Jamaica, for example, that had a population of 500,000 in the 1860s, had only 3,000 voters. So in reaction to political efforts to mobilize disenfranchised black peasants, Jamaican planters, for example, they'll dissolve their assembly. They revert to being a crown colony governed from London. In the Sugar Islands, all of them but Barbados will adopt the same policy, blocking the potential for any future black peasant democracy. None of these societies have the counterparts of like the Radical Republicans, a group of outsiders that have political power and promote fundamental transformation in the post-emancipation South of the United States. But the comparisons help highlight the radicalism of Reconstruction in the United States, which alone saw an effort to try and create and forge an interracial democracy. So with the political process of reconstruction going ahead, Congress debates whether land should be given to former slaves to foster some economic independence. And the second confiscation act in 1862, it authorized the government to seize and sell property of supporters of the rebellion. In June of 1866, however, President Johnson ruled that confiscation laws applied only to wartime. After a year of debate, or more than a year of debate, Congress is going to reject all the proposals to give land to former slaves. Given Americans' very strong belief in self-reliance, little sympathy exists for the idea that government should support any group. In addition, land redistribution represents an attack on property rights, which is another very cherished American value. So by 1867, land reform is dead. And throughout 1867, Congress routinely is having to work to override Johnson's vetoes, but the president undercuts congressional reconstruction in other ways. He interpreted the new laws narrowly and removed military commanders who vigorously enforced them. Congress will respond by restricting his power to issue orders to military commanders in the South. They're also going to pass the Tenure of Office Act, which forbids Johnson to remove any member of the cabinet without the Senate's consent. And the intention of the law is to prevent him from firing the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who is the only remaining radical in the cabinet. Johnson tries to dismiss him in February of 1868, so the House of Representatives will very angrily approve Articles of Impeachment. The articles focus on the violation of the Tenure of Office Act, but the charge with the most substance was that Johnson had acted to systematically obstruct Reconstruction legislation. In the trial before the Senate, his lawyers argue that a president can be impeached only for an indictable crime, which Johnson clearly had not committed. 
The radicals counter that impeachment apply to political offenses, not merely criminal acts. So in May 1868, the Senate will vote 35 to 19 to convict. They're one vote short of the two-thirds majority needed. So the seven Republicans that joined the Democrats in voting for acquittal are uneasy about using impeachment as a political weapon. All right, so what did Reconstruction in the South look like? So as the power of the radicals in Congress is waning, the fate of Reconstruction increasingly hinges on developments in the southern states themselves. Power in these states will rest with the new Republican parties, representing a coalition of black and white Southerners and transplanted Northerners called carpetbaggers. So once African Americans receive the right to vote, black men will constitute as much as 80% of the Republican voters in the South. They steadfastly oppose the Democratic Party with their appeal to white supremacy. But during Reconstruction, African Americans never hold office in proportion to their voting strength. No African American was ever elected governor. And only in South Carolina, where more than 60% of the population was black, do they control even one house of the state legislature. Between 15 and 20% of the state officers and 6% of members of Congress, which is two senators and 15 representatives, were black. Only in South Carolina did the black office holders approach their proportion of the population. So we're not really going to see massive amounts of black political leaders in the South at this time. Those who hold office are going to come from the top levels of African-American society. Among state and federal office holders, perhaps 80% are literate. Over a quarter have been free before the war, which are both marks of distinction within the black community. Their occupations will also set them apart. Most of them, uh, many of them will be professionals, mostly clergymen, preachers, ministers, And of the third that are farmers, nearly all own land. So that's considered to be very crucial and critical to them. In their political and social values, African-American leaders are more conservative than the rural black population. They show very little interest in land reform. Black citizens are a majority of the voters only in South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And most of the South, the Republican Party had to secure white votes to stay in power. Opponents will label white Southerners uh, who ally with the Republican Party. They call them scalawags. So this is just a term for white Southerners that support the Republican Party. Scalawags. An estimated quarter of white Southerners at one time did vote Republican. They were primarily unionists from like the upland counties and hill areas, largely yeoman farmers. Like, and Yoma farmers think of like the average middle class farmers at this time. Uh, most of them do not own slaves. If they do, maybe just one or two prior to the war. And so these voters are very attracted by the Republican promises to rebuild the South, restore prosperity, create public schools, open isolated areas to the market with railroads. The other group of white Republicans in the South are known as the Carpetbaggers. Originally from the North, they allegedly had arrived with all their worldly possessions stuffed in a carpet bag, ready to loot and plunder the defeated South. Some did, most certainly, but Northerners moved South for a variety of reasons. Carpetbaggers make up only a small percentage, 
of the Republican voters. They control almost a third of the offices in the South. More than half of all Southern Republican governors and nearly half of Republican members of Congress are originally Northerners. The Republican Party in the South had difficulty maintaining unity. So the Scalawags are very susceptible to the race issue and social pressure. As black Southerners are trying to press for greater recognition, white Southerners increasingly defect to the Democrats. Carpetbaggers, in contrast, are less sensitive to race, although most felt that their black allies should be content with minor offices. And so there's a lot of animosity between Scalawags and Carpetbaggers that grows out of their rivalry for party honors and that it becomes more intense over time. So these new southern state constitutions, they enact several very significant reforms. They come up with fairer systems of legislative representation and make many previously appointed offices elective. The radical state governments are going to assume some responsibility for social welfare and establish the first statewide systems of public schools in the South. Although all the new constitutions proclaim the principle of equality and grant black adult males the right to vote, on social relations, they're a lot more cautious. No state will outlaw segregation. South Carolina and Louisiana are going to be the only ones that require integration in public schools. And that's a mandate that's almost universally ignored. And so being very sensitive to status, mulattoes, which are mixed race, they are going to push for prohibition of social discrimination, but white Republicans will refuse to adopt a policy. They say it's too radical. So with the Southern economy in ruins at the end of the war, problems of economic reconstruction are severe. The new Republican governments encourage industrial development by providing subsidies, loans, even temporary exemptions from taxes. These governments are largely rebuilt from rebuilding the uh, Southern Railroad system. They offer very lavish aid to railroad corporations. In the two decades after 1860, the region will double its manufacturing establishments, but the South will steadily slip further behind the industrial economy of the North that's very booming. So the expansion of government services offers some temptations for corruption, as you can imagine. Southern officials regularly receive bribes and kickbacks for awarding railroad charters, franchises, other contracts. The railroad grants and new social services, such as schools, will also leave state governments in debt, even though taxes rose in the 1870s to four times the rate in 1860. Corruption, however, is not only a Southern problem, but a national one. During these years, the Democratic Tweed Ring up in New York City, they alone steal more money than all the Southern radical governments combined. Corruption is hardly limited to Southern Republicans. Many Democrats and white business leaders participate as well. So corruption in radical governments does exist, but Southern Democrats exaggerate its extent for partisan purposes. They oppose honest radical regimes just as bitterly as notoriously corrupt ones. In the eyes of most white Southerners, the real crime of the radical governments was that they allowed black citizens to hold some offices and tried to protect the civil rights of black Americans. Race was 
the white conservatives greatest weapon. It's going to prove the most effective means to try and undermine Republican power in the South as well. So what is it really like for these freed people? So emancipation, it came to slaves in different ways and at different times, but whatever the timing, freedom, meant a host of precious blessings to people that had been in bondage their whole lives, as you can imagine. So the first impulse was to think of freedom as obviously a contrast to slavery. Emancipation immediately released slaves from the most oppressive aspects of bondage, which conjure up, you know, the whippings, breaking up of families, sexual exploitation. Freedom also meant movement, you know, the right to travel without a pass or having to get white permission. Freedom also means that African-Americans labor would be for their own benefit. Freedom included finding a new place to work. Changing jobs is one very concrete way to break that psychological tie to slavery. Even planners with reputations for kindness sometimes saw most of their former hands leave. And symbolically, though, freedom meant having a full name. African Americans now are going to adopt last names or surnames, most commonly the name of the first master in their family's oral history as far back as they can recall. Most, however, do retain their first name, especially if the name had been given to them by their parents, which was most often the case. So whatever the name, Black Americans will insist on making the decision themselves. African Americans also seek to strengthen the family and freedom. Since slave marriages had not been recognized as legal, thousands of former slaves insist on being married again by proper authorities, even though that was not required by law. Those that have been forcibly separated in slavery and later remarried, they are going to confront the dilemma, well, which spouse do I take? Because some of them did remarry, right? But like in white families, black husbands will deem themselves to be the head of the family and act legally for their wives. They often insist that their wives would not work in the fields like they had in slavery. With negotiating contracts, a father is going to also demand the right to control his children and their labor. All these changes are designed to help insulate the black family from white control. And in freedom, the schoolhouse and the black church will become very essential institutions in the black community. So at first, northern churches and missionaries working with the Freedmen's Bureau will set up black schools in the south. Tuition at the schools represents 10% or more of a laborer's, a working person's, a laborer's monthly wages, yet these schools will be always full. Eventually, states will establish public school systems, which by 1867 control 40% of African American children. Or enroll, sorry, not control, enroll. Black adults who often attend night classes have good reasons for seeking out literacy. They want to be able to read the Bible, defend their newly gained civil and political rights, protect themselves from being cheated. Both races see that education is going to undermine the servility that slavery had fostered. So the teachers in the Freeman's Bureau schools, primarily northern middle class white women that were sent south by northern missionary societies, Many see themselves as peacetime soldiers struggling to make emancipation a reality. 
hostile white Southerners sometimes destroy the black schools and threaten and even murder white teachers. There's going to be the everyday challenges of low pay, rundown buildings, few books, classes of 100 or more children. By 1869, most teachers in the Freeman's Bureau schools are black trained by the Bureau. Most slaves had attended white churches or services supervised by whites. Once free, African Americans quickly established their own congregations led by black preachers. Mostly Methodist and Baptist black churches are the only major organizations in the African American community controlled by blacks themselves. So just like it had in slavery, religion offers African Americans a place of refuge in a very hostile white world and provides them with hope, comfort, and means of self-identification. As a largely propertyless class, Blacks in the post-war South had no choice but to work for white landowners. Except for paying wages, whites want to retain the old system of labor, including close supervision, gang labor, labor, and physical punishment. So very determined to remove all emblems of servitude, African-Americans are going to refuse to work under these conditions. They demand time off to devote to their own interests because of shorter hours and the withdrawal of children and women from the fields. Blacks' output will decline by an estimated 35% in freedom. They also refuse to live in the old slave quarters located near the master's house. Instead, they'll build cabins on distant parts of the plantation wages initially were about five or six dollars a month plus provisions in a cabin by 1867 they have risen to an average of ten dollars a month these changes eventually lead to the rise of sharecropping so under this arrangement african-american families farm you know small little discrete plots of land then at the end of the year they divide up the crop normally on an equal basis with the white landowner Sharecropping had higher status and offers greater personal freedom than being a wage laborer. Although black per capita agricultural income increased 40% in freedom, sharecropping is going to be a very harshly exploitative system where black families will sink into perpetual debt. The task of supervising the transition from slavery to freedom on southern plantations will fall to the Freedmen's Bureau a unique experiment in social policies supported by the federal government. Assigned the task of protecting freed people's economic rights, approximately 550 local agents regulate working conditions in Southern agriculture after the war. The racial attitudes of the Bureau agents will vary widely, and so will their commitment and competence. Most agents require written contracts between white planters and black laborers specifying the wages, conditions of employment, Although agents them sometimes intervene to protect freed people from unfair treatment, they also will help provide important help to planters. They insist that black laborers not leave at harvest time. They arrest those that violate their contracts or refuse to sign new ones at the beginning of the year. They preach the need to be orderly and respectful. Because of these attitudes, free people increasingly complain that bureau agents are just tools of the planter class. The primary means of enforcing working conditions are the Freedmen's Courts. Congress created these in 1966 to try and avoid the discrimination African Americans receive in state courts. These new courts function as military tribunals, essentially. Often the agent 
is going to be the entire court. So the sympathy black laborers receive varies from state to state, but since Congress was opposed to creating any permanent welfare agency, they shut down the Freedmen's Bureau by 1872, it had gone out of business. So despite its mixed record, it is going to be the most effective agency in protecting Blacks' civil and political rights. Their disbanding is going to signal the beginning of the Northern withdrawal and retreat from Reconstruction. Planters and other white Southerners are going to face emancipation with, you know, dread. Slavery had been a complex institution that merged black and white southerners together in very intimate relationships the old ideal of a paternalistic planner that required blacks to act subservient and grateful gives way to an emphasis on strictly economic relationships only with time do the planners develop new norms to judge black behavior so after the war planters increasingly embrace the ideology of segregation since emancipation significantly reduced the social distance between the races, white Southerners seek psychological separation and kept dealings with African Americans to a minimum. By the time Reconstruction ended, white planters had developed a new way of life based on the institutions of sharecropping and segregation, and it's going to be undergirded by a very militant white supremacy. Most planters kept their land but they do not regain the economic prosperity of those pre-war years. Cotton prices were beginning a long decline. Southern per capita income is going to suffer as a result. By 1880, the value of Southern farms had slid 33% below the level from 1860. All right. Then we have the abandonment of Reconstruction. So on Christmas Day, 1875, a white acquaintance approached Charles Caldwell in Clinton, Mississippi, and invites him to have a drink. This is just a story kind of setting up the whole thing. A former slave, Caldwell was a state senator, leader of the Republican Party in Hines County, but the black leader's fearlessness made him a marked man. Only two months earlier, he had fled the county to escape an armed white mob. Despite threats against him, he returned home to vote in the November state election. So now as Caldwell and his friend raise their glasses in a holiday toast, a gunshot explodes through the window and Caldwell collapses, mortally wounded. He's taken outside. His assassins riddle his body with bullets. He's going to die alone in the street, unfortunately. But there's a number of black Republican leaders in the South during Reconstruction that share his fate. Resorting to violence and terror, white Southerners challenge the commitment of the federal government to sustaining Reconstruction. After Andrew Johnson was acquitted in May of 1868 at his impeachment trial, the crusading idealism of the Republican Party starts to wane. Ulysses S. Grant is going to be president, but he starts to kind of symbolize, even though he's not the cause of the change, he starts to symbolize that change. So in 1868, Grant is elected president, and Republicans are shocked. Their candidate, who's a great war hero, have won by a margin of only 300,000 votes. With an estimated 450,000 black Republican votes cast in the South, a majority of whites had voted Democratic. The election helps convince Republican leaders that an amendment securing black suffrage throughout the country is necessary. So in February 1869, Congress will send the 15th Amendment to the states for ratification. 
It forbids any state to deny the right to vote on grounds of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So it does not forbid literacy and property requirements as some radicals wanted because the moderates feared that only a conservative version of the amendment could be ratified. So as a result, the amendment is ratified in March of 1870, but there's a lot of loopholes that remain that eventually allow the southern states to disenfranchise African Americans. Advocates of women's suffrage are going to be very disappointed when Congress refused to outlaw voting discrimination on the basis of sex as well as race. The Women's Loyal League, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, they oppressed for first the 14th and then the 15th Amendment to recognize that women had a civic right to vote. But even most radicals were unwilling to back women's suffrage, saying black rights have to be ensured first. As a result, the 15th Amendment divided the feminist movement. Although disappointed that women were not included in its provisions, Lucy Stone and the American Women's Suffrage Association urged ratification. Stan and Anthony, however, denounced the amendment and organized the National Women's Suffrage Association to work for passage of a new amendment giving women the ballot. This division is going to hamper the women's rights movement for decades. When Ulysses S. Grant was a general... His quiet manner and well-known resolution served him well at the time. As president, he proved much less certain of his goals and therefore less effective at corralling politicians than at maneuvering troops. A series of scandals are going to rack his administration so much that grantism soon became a code word in American politics for corruption, cronyism, banality. Although Grant did not profit personally, he remained loyal to his friends and displayed very little zeal to root out any wrongdoing. Congress is not immune to this lower tone of public life. And so when we have these very uh, ruthless state machines, state political machines led by men that favor the status quo, it comes to dominate the party. So as corruption in both the North and the South worsens, reformers become more interested in cleaning up government than in protecting black rights. In 1872, Congress passed an Amnesty Act allowing many more ex-Confederates to serve in Southern governments. That same year, liberal Republicans break with the Republican Party and nominate for president Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune. He was a one-time radical. He had become disillusioned with Reconstruction and urged a restoration of home rule in the South as well as adoption of civil service reform. Democrats decide to back the liberal Republican ticket, Republicans renominate Grant, who, despite defection of a number of prominent radicals, wins an easy victory. So, during Grant's second term, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, the last major piece of Reconstruction legislation. This law prohibited racial discrimination in public accommodations, transportation, places of amusement, and juries. At the same time, Congress rejected a ban on segregation in public schools, which was almost universally practiced in the North as well as the South. The federal government made little attempt to uh, enforce the law, however, and in 1883, the Supreme Court strikes down its provisions except the one relating to juries. Despite passage of the Civil Rights Act, many Northerners were growing disillusioned with Reconstruction. They were repelled by the corruption of the Southern governments. They were tired of the violence and disorder that accompanied elections in the South. They had very little faith in black Americans. 
So as the agony of the war became more distant, the panic of 1873, which precipitated a very severe four-year depression, diverted public attention to economic issues. Battered by the panic and the corruption issue, the Republicans lose 77 seats in Congress in the 1874 elections. And along with them, they lose control of the House of Representatives for the first time since 1861. And we see more and more Republicans speak about cutting loose the very unpopular Southern governments. Meanwhile, Southern Democrats set out to overthrow the remaining radical governments. Already, white Republicans in the South felt heavy pressure to desert their party. To poor white Southerners who lack social standing, the Democratic appeal to racial solidarity offers some special comfort. The large landowners and other wealthy groups that led Southern Democrats object less to black Southerners voting since they were confident that if outside influences were removed, they could control the black vote. Democrats also resort to economic pressure to undermine Republican power. In heavily black counties, newspapers publish the names of black residents who cast Republican ballots and urge planners to discharge them. But terror and violence provides the most effective means to overthrow the radical regimes. A number of paramilitary organizations break up Republican meetings, terrorize white and black Republicans, assassinate Republican leaders, and prevent black citizens from voting. The most notorious of these organizations was the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK which along with similar groups functioned as an unofficial arm of the Democratic Party. In the war for supremacy, sorry, contesting control of the night was paramount to both Southern whites and blacks. Before emancipation, masters regulated the nighttime hours with a system of passes and patrols that chased slaves who went hunting or tried to sneak a visit to a family member at a neighboring plantation. For slaves, the night provided precious free time to read, to meet for worship, school, or dancing. During Reconstruction, African Americans actively took back the night for a host of activities, including torchlight political raids and meetings of such organizations as the Union League. Part of the Klan's mission was to recoup this contested ground and limit the ability of African Americans to use the night as they pleased. When indirect threats of violence were not enough, like galloping through black neighborhoods, rattling fences with lances, things like that, beatings and executions were undertaken. What became known as the Mississippi Plan was inaugurated in 1875, when Democrats decided to use as much violence as necessary to carry the state election. Recognizing that Northern public opinion had grown sick of repeated federal intervention in Southern elections, the Grant administration rejected the request of Republican Governor Adelbert Ames for troops to stop the violence. Bolstered by terrorism, the Democrats sweep the election in Mississippi. Violence and intimidation prevented as many as 60,000 black and white Republicans from voting, converting the normal Republican majority into a Democratic majority of 30,000. And at this point, when it was happening in Mississippi, Mississippi was considered to be redeemed, and so they no longer had to abide by those strict provisions of the Reconstruction set by Congress. The 1876 presidential election was crucial to the final overthrow of Reconstruction. The Republicans nominated Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes to oppose Samuel J. Tilden, governor of New York. Once again, violence prevented an estimated quarter of a million Republican votes from being cast in the South. Tilden had a clear majority of 250,000 in the popular vote, but the outcome in the Electoral College 
was in doubt because both parties claimed South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, the only reconstructed states still in Republican hands. So to arbitrate the disputed returns, Congress will establish a 15-member electoral commission. By straight party vote of 8-7, to seven, the commission awarded the disputed electoral votes and the presidency to Hayes. When angry Democrats threatened a filibuster to prevent the electoral votes from being counted, key Republicans meet with Southern Democrats and reach an informal understanding, later known as the Compromise of 1877. Hayes' supporters agreed to withdraw federal re- troops from the South and not oppose the new Democratic state governments. So for their part, Southern Democrats dropped their opposition to Hayes' election and pledged to respect African-American civil rights. So Reconstruction failed for a multitude of reasons. The reforming impulse behind the Republican Party of the 1850s had been battered and worn down by the war. The new materialism of industrial America inspired a jaded cynicism in many Americans. And the South African-American voters and leaders inevitably lack a certain amount of education and experience. So beyond all these obstacles, the staff fact remains that the ideals of Reconstruction were most clearly defeated by a deep-seated racism that permeated American life. Racism stimulated white Southern resistance, it undercut Northern support for black rights, and it eventually made Northerners willing to write off Reconstruction and with it the welfare of African Americans. Congress could pass a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery, but they can't overturn at a stroke the social habits that have been in place for two centuries. So I hope you guys enjoyed this lecture recording on Reconstruction. Take care now. I'll see y'all next time.